This is HPR episode 1746 entitled Scale 13x part 3 of 6. It is hosted by Lord Rashenblut and is about 53 minutes long. The summary is 8 interviews from Scale 13x. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Greetings, Hacker Public Radio, Lord Dragonblut here at Scale again, and I am with the folks from the LPI booth right now, and who who do I have the pleasure of talking with today? Uh, I'm Emily, and I do marketing and PR for the Linux Professional Institute. And I'm Chuck Bixby, Director of Regional Development for North America. Now, for um, the people at LPI, could you guys tell you know them kind of what LPI is and what's its primary goals? Absolutely. So we've been around for about, we just celebrated our 15th anniversary in last October, and we do vendor-neutral vendor Linux certifications. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Chuck? Yeah, we're committed to workforce development of uh, Linux and open source professionals. We have a nice uh, career path through our professional certifications and uh, also an entry-level certificate that makes it uh, easy for folks to kind of dip their toe in the pond and uh, learn a little bit about Linux and uh, make decisions on whether that's a good career pursuit for them or to complement their IT discipline, whatever that might be. Now, the certification, or the one you were just talking about, that is fairly recent what um what's its name and kind of what was the genesis of that one uh so linux essentials is our newest certificate uh it's an actual professional development certificate program uh it's our newest program of the four that we currently offer um and we really wanted to give um, a pathway to people who are maybe not a linux systems administrator um which is sort of more of our lpic line so we wanted you know people who are cloud professionals or network professionals who need some verified linux skills but maybe aren't ready for the full lpic series an opportunity to prove that they've got some linux skills now um what about the lpic can you tell people more about you know what levels you have because to my knowledge there's three levels but if you could kind of inform people what those levels are and kind of the rough idea of what each one would cover for sure so we have uh, our professional certification series uh is our lpic series it does consist of three levels uh they are um they are not independent of each other, so they build on each other over time. So LPIC 1 is sort of more server-focused. It is our first-level professional certification. Uh, LPIC 2, which is sort of more network-based. And then our third level is LPIC 3, which is more enterprise-focused. And that consists of one specialty exam in either security, mixed environments, or virtualization and high availability. Now, for the people who might be interested in taking these, now, at events such as scale and other ones there is a discounted price typically but what is the normal normal price and how would someone go about registering for and going to take one of these certifications absolutely so we uh, Pearson View delivers all of our exams worldwide through their testing center network uh, so anyone could sign up through Pearson View uh, to take a test there um, the exams, uh, we do, do do them at a discount when we do exam labs at events such as these, uh, but our standard LPIC are about 183 per exam. Our LPIC 1 and 2 are two exams uh, to complete that certification. So. so at a rough one, it would be just over $200 to, for both tests for, say, the LPIC Level 1 certification. Uh, for LPIC 1, actually, it's because it's two tests, it's 183 per test, so it's a little over 360, but our exams um, are good for five years. So. Okay, I'm sorry, I misheard you. I thought you said one something, not 183, so I apologize for that, folks. 
No worries. So, um, anything else you'd like to tell the Hacker Public Radio um, resources they might be interested in? Yes, if you have any further uh, questions or want more information or details on what the exams cover, you can visit www.lpi.org. And I will say, folks, if you ever make it to um, an event where LPI is, be sure to stop by. They are great folks, and they have some really cool uh, things they tend to give away. I'm sitting here looking at some really cool penguins with the you know LPI logo on it. Um, Chuck, is there anything else you'd like to add before we kind of wrap this? Uh, no, thank you. We really appreciate your time. Okay, final question, because I was asked to try to get this one with everyone. What is your preferred text editor? Uh, I just used uh, standard text edit on the Mac. And you, Chuck? Uh, ditto. <laughs> all right. So, all right, everyone out there, this has been Lord Drakenblut at Scale 13X, and I'll see you on the next interview. Greetings, everyone at Hacker Public Radio. This is Lord Drakenblue here at Scale13x still, and I'm in front of the One Course Source booth. And who do I have the pleasure of talking to this morning? I'm Sarah. And Sarah, what do you do at One Course? You personally, and then we'll go on to One Course itself. I am sales and marketing for One Course Source. All right, and what does One Course Source provide to the community? One Course Source provides training and courseware materials for technical um, companies as well as individuals. And at a rough idea, what um, does the training cost? Because I think people all too often in interviews, they kind of get to that last, and I would prefer to kind of hit that early so people know so they can make decisions on whether to keep listening to me blather or not from there. Absolutely. The courses for the LPIC classes are normally about $1,900. Mini classes are 300 and then the programming classes are about 995 They are on sale for scale, though, and they're down to 499 for the LPIC, 99 for the mini classes, and then 399 for the programming classes. So if someone goes to not just say scale per se, but other um, events you guys might be at, those are prices they can have a rough idea that they will be seeing in general. Yes, generally we do do discounted prices for events. And uh, what kind of training overall do you guys offer you were telling me more than just the lpi before we started recording um we also do perl programming shell unix ubuntu um and then there the later part of this year there will be additional courses that they'll be training on as well all right and if people are interested in one course source where should they head to to find more information OneCourseSource.com. All right. Is there anything you'd like to add before we put a wrap on this one for now? If they have the opportunity to stop by scale, stop by the booth and get more information or visit us online. All right. Well, thank you for your time. And this has been Lord Drakenblut at Scale13X. Greetings, Hacker Public Radio. Here's Lord Drakenblut at Scale13x, and right now I am at the Elementary OS booth, and who do I have the pleasure of speaking with this morning? I'm Cassidy. And I'm Katie. And what are your guys' roles with Elementary? (laughs) I'm uh, one of the founders and a UX designer. I'm his wife. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Elementary OS is, as I understand it, a fairly new uh, kid on the block. What kind of sets elementary apart from, you know, a lot of the other distros available right now? So it's, um, the whole operating system was pretty much designed and founded by designers. So it's, we take a user experience that we think, you know, is is really easy to use and then turn it into software. So rather than using the technologies 
um, that are available and then figuring out how to I- implement them, we start with the user experience and work backwards towards the technology. And in anything you'd like to add, ma'am? <laughs> um, that I'm not a typical Linux user, would you say? Yeah. Um, and so elementary is really accessible for people like me who aren't power users. Um, Cass said that there's like a lot of under-the-hood tools that Linux users are typically used to, but it's still very simple for people who are new to Linux. Now, since um, Katie brought it up, how is elementary's accessibility, um, and I'm not talking, I'm talking more for um, blind or people with, you know, physical impairments, how is its um, usability in that respects right now? So we're built on top of um, a lot of GNOME technologies, um, like we use GTK and we use a lot of the GNOME accessibility things that are built into GNOME. Uh, so on that front, we're very similar to any other distribution like uh, Ubuntu or Fedora or GNOME, where we have uh, an on-screen keyboard, we have screen reading, and we have high contrast mode and things like that so that people can use our software. All right. And if people wanted to check out Elementary OS and learn more about it, where should they start? Elementary.io is our website, and you can check out um, information about us there and give it a download. Now, um if people are interested in getting involved past that, where are areas that elementary OS could use help, you think? Um, we always uh, can use more people who are familiar with GTK or programming on Linux. Um, and if you go to elementary.io slash get dash involved, um, there's an information there as to how you can get involved with the project. All right. And anything else you'd like to add before I get to um, final question? We put a wrap on things for now. Um, we're, we released our stable version Luna um, almost a year ago, I think now, and we're coming out with Freya Beta 2, or we just came out with Freya Beta 2, and Elementary OS Freya should be out in a stable version within the next few months, so um, it's exciting because it's built on the latest LTS of Ubuntu, and a whole host of new changes and fixes under the hood, so it's, uh, it's really cool. <laughs> All right. Well, and thank you for pointing out what the base is. I had almost forgotten that question. Um, the last question I was requested to ask people, what is your preferred text editor? I actually use the Scratch text editor. Um, it's something that is actually an elementary project, and it uses GTK source view. So it's very similar to Gedit, but it has a lot of the nice elementary um, design features built in. And is there anything you'd like to add, Katie, before we put a wrap? And what is your favorite text editor? <laughs> Um, I have used Scratch for some front-end web development. And so anything else you'd like to add before we put a wrap? Anything you think I might have missed? Nope. (laughs) All right. Well, this has been Lord Drakenblut speaking with the folks at Elementary OS at Scale13x. All right, this is Lord Dragonblood at Scale13x, and right now I'm at the GoBot Arturo Cylon.js booth, it appears. And who do I have the uh, pleasure of speaking with today? I'm Dead Program, also known in the real world as Ron Evans, and I'm the ringleader of the hybrid group. We're the creators of a bunch of different open-source robotics and physical computing frameworks, including Cylon.js, R2, and GoBot. And who else do we have here today? Hi, I'm Manolo Evans, and I'm the son of Ron Evans. I'm Adrian Zankich. Um, Zankich on GitHub and Twitter and all that stuff. I'm Nathan Zankich, and I made all of the websites for the, uh, um, for the robotics programs. All right, so what are you guys here showing, and you know, kind of what are you guys doing in general? So we love robots and physical computing, and we love to program them. So we created some frameworks to make it easier in languages that we use typically every day, JavaScript. Uh, Go is a new language. It's not as used by as many people, but it's very powerful, very concurrent, uh, created by Rob Pike and others uh, at Google. Rob Pike, as you probably know, listeners, is the uh, creator of UTF-8 and the Plan 9 operating system. So... um, Go is a really powerful language for programming concurrent devices, and anything we see, we think, wow, how can we make it move? 
Well, thank you for telling me that. I never knew that Go came from Planet Nine, basically, as I'll put it, at least. So, I see you guys have some really interesting-looking hardware here. What What do you have on display today? So, uh, we have a bunch of different toys with us. Um, one thing about toys, any sufficiently advanced technology starts out in the form of a toy. So if you want to know what the future is bringing, just go to a really, really great toy store or uh, Maker Fair, of course. So uh, we have a few different toys that we brought with us. Uh, we have the Sphero robots from our friends Sphero of Boulder, Colorado. It is a uh, microcontroller with a Bluetooth radio and an accelerometer. It rolls around under Bluetooth control and it has a whole API. So we can program that using Cylon.js, R2, or GoBot. We also have the new Ollie robot, uh, also from Sphero. Uh, this thing goes, it's Bluetooth low energy, uh, so it uses a lot less power. Uh, takes that power and puts it into the motors. So this thing, it looks kind of like a tin can on steroids, and it can take jumps. Top speed of about 15 to 20 miles an hour, um, which... I haven't had a chance to clock yet, but I did bring my LiDAR light device, so I'm going to use my LiDAR to actually check the speed of the Sphero later on. And then I have my MIP robot from uh, Wowee, the same company that originally created the RoboSapien. This is their latest Bluetooth low-energy controlled robotic toy. It's the year of uh, Bluetooth low-energy toys, I guess. Um, definitely. And... If people want to check out more of what you guys are doing, get involved, start playing with things, where should they head to? Well, we've spent a lot of time on our websites, on documentation to make it easy for people to get started. If you go to CylonJS.com, or if you go to GoBot.io, or if you go to R2.io, that's A-R-T-O-O.io, we have uh, full versions of all of our open source frameworks. They're all Apache uh, 2.0 licensed, so you can use them in either your free-to-use or even your commercial projects. And um, they're a really great way to get started hacking using higher-level languages that you already know and that you probably already love. Okay. Well, since you brought it up, why did you make the choice of an Apache license over you know, something like the GPL or other licenses? Well, uh, without getting anybody upset, um, the problem that we have with the GPL is we don't have anyone to pay our rent. We needed to have something that could be used as part of a commercial project if we wanted to get companies to pay us to do things with it. So we elected to go with Apache 2.0 in order to have both commercial and non-commercial uses. You know, we want to see non-commercial uses and not put limitations on them so we didn't choose something like the LGPL you know so that having that double standard seemed very confusing so instead of doing dual licensing on your code you chose a license that allowed for the dual purpose if I'm understanding correctly that's our understanding now we are programmers not lawyers uh, we don't play them on webisodes either so we don't really know the details of these things the way that lawyers would, and lawyers don't even agree upon them. But our best understanding is this was a way for us to provide for both commercial and non-commercial uses without anybody worrying about infringing, since um, there's a real exciting movement of young companies that are trying to build either hardware products or hardware-enabled services, and we wanted to make it possible for them to use open source to do so instead of you know looking at closed source options. All right, and is there anything you think I've missed you'd like to um, tell the Hacker Public Radio audience? Hardware is really fun. Don't be scared. You don't necessarily have to learn how to solder, but if you do, there's lots and lots of great people out there willing to help you. There's makerspaces opening up. There's lots and lots of exciting movements, and the community is really interested in helping people get started with hacking around with hardware. All right, and final question I will have for all four of you is, what is your preferred text editor? Uh, preferred text editor? Well, most of us use Vim. All right, and just to verify, what's your guys' favorite text editor? Uh, Vim. Yeah, Vim, of course. Yeah, Vim. All right, there we go. One booth, four guys, Vim enabled. This is Lord Drakenblut signing off.
Greetings, Hacker Public Radio. This is Lord Drockblue at Scale 13X, and right now I am in front of the Syslog NG booth, if I'm not mistaken. And who all do I have the uh, opportunity to speak to this morning? My name is Istvan Sabo, and uh, I am uh, the product manager responsible for Syslog NG product. And I'm Peter Tanik, the community manager of Syslog NG. All right, so could you kind of tell the Hacker Public Radio audience what Syslog NG is and um, where they might put it to use? Uh, yes, it's a logging solution. It's both for client and uh, the server side. Actually, the main strength of Syslog NG is central log collection. Uh, it can send logs uh, to the this center. It can uh, filter, process, do many things, and store, store it all forward to visualization, alerting, and so on. Now, why would people use SyslogNG over things that are already implemented um, in a you know Linux system already? What, what advantages does SyslogNG provide? Uh, SyslogNG has a quite conf- uh, flexible configuration language, which makes it quite... Uh, very easy to uh, implement complex uh, logging solutions. And um, looking at some of this, there's also mention of some you know, encryption and other things. Are those things that don't exist in other systems that are kind of come by default? Or... Uh, well, out of, out of the uh, the, the, other, the other significant advantage of SyslogNG basically is it, uh, is it, it, it is very high speed. So basically, if you would like to uh, uh, to collect log messages on a single server, you can go up to uh, um, 600,000 events per second. That's basically what uh, what really separates uh, uh, Syslog uh, out of the out of the other uh, log collection solutions. And I know the audience I'm, you know, listening right now would be interested. What um, licenses Syslog NG under currently? It's uh, under GPL. It's on, uh, it's on GitHub. So it's uh, GPL v3, and if people are interested in the code, it's on GitHub. Where would they go on GitHub exactly? Uh, it's uh, github.com uh, bellabit. Uh, All right. Well, we'll make sure. And it's B A L A B I T, folks. Now, if people want to get involved with um, Syslog, either you know contributing code, using it, where's the uh, best part, place for them to go to get started? Uh, in uh, our uh, ticketing system is on GitHub. GitHub issues. Uh, you can fork it from there, the source code, anytime we, uh, we res- uh, process pull requests uh, timely. Uh, and we have a quite busy mailing list as well. And, and there is obviously the syslogng.org website, which you can, which you can visit. And basically, uh, what you can also do is, uh, all, although syslogng is written in the C programming language, now we make it possible that you can add modules in, in Java programming language, in Python, in Perl, even even in Lua. So it makes it uh, relatively easy to, to contribute because you don't necessarily need to, to use a C programming language to add your destination, for example, log destination. So people can extend the functionality of Syslog NG as they need using other languages that they might be more comfortable or familiar with. Exactly. Yes, yes. And is there anything you think I've missed that you would like the Hacker Public Radio audience to know? Not really. Uh, we, ha- we, uh, we will have a presentation Sunday in the, in the afternoon. Uh, where we, we, uh, one can get known with the uh, basics of SyslogNG, message parsing, and uh, also the language bindings my colleague mentioned. Well, thank you for pointing out. I think I need to start informing people a little better that, unfortunately, these interviews probably won't come out for until about, a, you know, over the next month or two after this. So my apologies for that. But I think um, Scale is working on being able to record and release these so people might be able to still see it. Um, do, you, do you guys have any videos and stuff directly up? Or is it just, you know, kind of search on YouTube for anyone's particulars? 
I guess what I'm saying is if I go to syslog-ng.org, you know, are there any kind of tutorials up there that I could find? Uh, without without the learns, we don't have yet, but probably it's a good idea to put something there. Uh, we have some uh, links, uh, how to get started, uh, uh, quite detailed documentation, uh, uh, many blogs detailing how to do specific things in syslog-ng, but not yet videos. All right, so there's a lot of good information on the website. You just don't have videos at the moment, and that's something that might come. And the last question I have is, what is your guy's preferred text editor? Uh, I prefer Joe, as I coded uh, in Turbo Pascal many years ago, and it has the uh, very same uh, keyboard shortcuts. <laughs> and you, sir? I typically use, uh, use Emacs, and for simple things, just gedit. All right. Well, this has been Lord Dragon Blue for Hacker Public Radio at Scale 13x. Greetings, Hacker Public Radio. This is Lord Drakenblut at Scale 13X, and currently I am at the OpenX booth. Um, and who do I have the pleasure of speaking to? Uh, my name is Shane Groot. I'm the Vice President of Technology Operations at OpenX. Now, what is OpenX? You know, what do they provide to the community? OpenX is an advertising platform, uh, primarily centered around real-time bidding and supply side. Uh, and we are heavy open source, uh, not only contributors, but adopters and users. And uh, we are based in Pasadena, and uh, you were, we're here at Scale to, to talk more about OpenX and why you might want to work here. All right. Now, what have you guys released any code the community could get their hooks into, get involved, use, you know? Yeah, we actually have. We have a couple of open source projects that we support. Um, I actually don't remember them offhand, but uh, we have a couple of uh, JavaScript projects that are submit. Um, we also are uh, part of the um, OpenRTB effort, which is uh, an open source, real-time bidding platform, and we support that within our exchange. Uh, and uh, probably more that, that, that I don't remember right now, but uh, yeah, we, we get back to the community quite often. All right, so um, if people are interested in OpenX because it looks like you guys are here primarily looking for new talent to join you. Where should people go um, to contact you guys? Easiest way is just to go to openx.com slash careers. It's our careers page. We've got a lot of really interesting information up there about the uh, roles we have open. We are looking for a lot of talent this year, so uh, we definitely need people all year long, and uh, we're primarily centering these days around Python, uh, big data, and then, of course, my team, anybody uh, with a strong Unix, Linux background and site reliability. So those are the three big focus areas. All right. And is there anything you think I might have missed at this point you'd kind of like the Hacker Public Radio community to know about? Um, yeah, I think one of the unique things that separates us from a lot of other companies is that uh, a lot of the hacker community appreciates large scale, big scale, and, and doing things in the thousands of nodes perspective. Um, and when you're dealing with problems that are, you know, uh, at the millisecond level and not at the full second level, it presents unique challenges uh, for scalability and performance. Um, and it's really fun to work on. So if you were thinking about working at a company like Google, but you didn't want to get into the big engine and just be a single cog, I think OpenX is a great fit for you because we have a lot of the same problems that Google does without, uh, you know, some of the maybe disadvantages that some, some people might think is a, a disadvantage working at a company like Google or Yahoo. So... Um, yeah. Now, I, I will say I had the chance to speak to someone yesterday who was talking about timing issues, I think, that go even beyond what you guys would. And I just want to present it to you so you can hear this. Um, NASA actually has a very unique problem with timing on a Postgres SQL database that is in orbit because now you're starting to run into issues where time your event could show up before it was actually sent according to time servers, but that is perfectly reasonable and that um, they have three databases that are basically always talking to each other and reconciling because for them, bit flipping is a true issue in space. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really interesting problem. Um, 
similar to some of the stuff that we're working on right now. Uh, not not quite that uh, sexy, maybe in, in some ways, because we're in the advertising space, but but still interesting and, and difficult to deal with because you know a lot of times when you're dealing with time and you're dealing with millisecond response times, and we our platform actually sits in the middle of uh, a lot of transactions. Yeah, you get you get some really interesting data synchronization problems, particularly when you have multiple locations on the planet that you have to synchronize data with. So. Um, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating problem. I, I uh, I'm, I'm interested in reading more about that. Yeah, um, it was. I don't know if the talk is out there, but it was a Postgres SQL. And the gentleman's here. He's with Postgres SQL. So if I find him again, I'll try to point him your way because I'll let him know you're interested. Now, last question: What is your preferred text editor? My preferred text editor. <laughs> it, it's. Uh, it was a question I was asked to ask. Oh God, it's one of those questions. Ah, oh man. All right, I'll, I'll go with. Uh, I'll go with Vi, not even Vim, just Vi. That's that's my preferred. All right, well, folks, this has been Lord Drakenblut at Scale Thirteen X. Greetings, Hacker Public Radio. This is Lord Dragonblut, still at Scale13x, and currently I am with Think Penguin. And who do I have the pleasure of speaking with this morning? Uh, it's Christopher Wade. Now, Christopher, uh, could you tell the Hacker Public Radio audience a little bit about Think Penguin, its uh, goals, missions, you know, what it's trying to accomplish? Yeah, so um, basically, uh, Think Penguin is a company that sells free software-friendly hardware. Um, everything that we sell is uh, going to work really, really well uh, with any uh, GNU Linux distribution uh, out of the box, as long as it's got a fairly recent software stack. Um, we do also support uh, older distributions and, and long-term support distributions. Uh, so you, you, there is a lot of our hardware that will also work with uh, you know, uh, things like CentOS, um, Debian, uh, you know, things that have an older software stack. Now, what th- sets Think Penguin apart from the rest of the competitors in this kind of um, market space? Um, basically, everything that we sell is free software friendly. So, what most people don't realize is that most of our, uh, the competition actually has proprietary drivers and firmware pieces, uh, which can become hindrances when you go to upgrade from one version to another. Um, you may not have support at all. Um, it's, a, it's a big problem from printers to laptops and desktops and Wi-Fi cards and 3D accelerated graphics. All right. And what kind of range of products do you guys offer? <laughs> Anything that you could probably think of as far as um, hardware and accessories go. Webcams, dial-up modems, um, laptops, desktops, uh, parallel port cards, uh, firewire cards, um, graphics cards, printers... All right, and now one announcement I'm aware of you guys had recently. You brought a new piece of uh, technology into your guys' space, as I understand it. was a new router, was it? Ah, uh, yeah, so we... Um uh, we came out with a 100% free software-friendly router. So basically all the distributions, uh, embedded distributions for routers currently include non-free pieces because most routers are dependent on um, chipsets which are dependent on non-free pieces. Um, so they wouldn't work on most routers um, without those pieces. Um, so what we did was we came out and we stripped out those pieces and uh, put it on a free software-friendly router that, that wasn't dependent on uh, any non-free pieces. And so part of that part of it, it's called LibreCMC, which is the embedded distribution. And it will work on other uh, devices potentially in the future. Um, right now, it's primarily for one particular router. Um, we are working on a newer router, um, a more higher-end router, uh, which will hopefully you know, come out within maybe, maybe a month or two, hopefully, depending on how things go. All right, and does it have any unique capabilities such as you know being able to plug like a USB hard drive into it and share it on my internal network or anything like that? Yeah, so the one we're working on right now, uh, what we're hoping to have out is, I believe, going to have a gigabit, uh, gigabit Ethernet support as well as a USB uh, port. Um, so you will have uh, additional support. Um, there, there may also be some additional uh, features that are unique to... Uh, 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 the router that we're going to come out with because it will have a lot more RAM in it than most routers have. All right. And what is the name of that 
router that you guys sell right now, and can you say what the name of the next one is? Um, yes, it's it's a free software friendly broadband router. I believe is what it's called on our website, um, and that's just thinkpenguin.com um, under wireless uh, router, or actually wireless or uh, networking section. Sorry. Now, I'm also. I believe was aware that Think Penguin offers some unique tools for um, distributions that some other sites don't have available to them. Um, I believe you're referring to the optional accessories that you can purchase with it. Um, those are nice, but I was t- believe there was some stuff on the website where you could click on something and do some installs. Uh, maybe I've got something confused here, but I thought you guys had some tools to help make things a little easier for new people as far as hacking on the routers no i mean on like your laptops your desktops and so on so sorry for that confusion on my part i i don't i'm, I'm not sure what you're i'm not sure what you're referring to it's possible but i'm not sure what you're referring to i wish i could remember the name i would remember listening to uh the Linux link tech show a while back when Someone from Think Penguin was on there, and they had mentioned some tools on the website um, that was like a Firefox extension, I want to say, for helping identify software and install it. But maybe I... Yeah, so, yeah, we did. We had out a tool. Unfortunately, we discontinued the tool, um, but it basically helped users uh, locate free software uh, friendly websites um, for video and other uh, other purposes. Um, so, for instance, if you went to uh, Netflix, it would redirect you to another website. Um, unfortunately, uh, or for, actually fortunately, a lot of these uh, issues have kind of been resolved over time, so the tool became less uh, necessary. Well, on the Netflix side of things... You know, you're going to have to have DRM involved. So. Yeah, so, so Netflix in and of itself has not been resolved. That's for sure. Um, but there have been. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, where before we a lot of sites needed Adobe Flash, they no longer need Adobe Flash um, for video streaming. So you no longer really need a tool to uh, direct users at a site that is uh, free of Adobe Flash. All right, so you guys have kind of discontinued that tool because you feel most of that has been resolved and it's not really a needed tool anymore? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot less uh, critical of a tool at this point in time. It could definitely be useful, um, unfortunately, to continue to uh, maintain the tool with the constantly changing versions of Firefox um, just wasn't worth it considering uh, all the other things that are changing um, and just in general. So if someone were interested in maybe picking that tool up and continuing it, that's something where someone could contribute who maybe has more time than you guys do to bring that tool back and help keep it going. Yeah, um, it's not a tool I would have liked to discontinue, but... um, it's just that there's other things that are uh, more important as far as um, uh, putting the money into other other areas that are probably going to be more beneficial to more users. All right. And if people want to check out what you guys have to offer, where should they head to? Um, thinkpenguin.com. All right. Um, anything you think I've missed? Anything you would like the Hacker Public Radio audience to know before we kind of put a wrap on things? No, I think I think you, you pretty much summed it up. You asked great questions, and uh, that's. And the last question I was asked to ask people is, "What is your preferred text editor?" <laughs> preferred text editor. Um, I, I'd have to say Emacs. So you like booting up in an operating system to change a text file. Bad joke on Emacs being such a large thing oh, that yes. some people call Emacs an OS unto itself. Ah, uh, yes, yes, So yes. you like booting up Emacs OS to write a text file. Yeah, I, I don't know where that joke got started, but I, I, thought, I thought we actually might have started that joke even, but I'm sure it was probably a long time ago somebody started it. Well, I will tell you, I actually ran across one time, someone had put a guide up on how to make 
um, Emacs and Vim both run as like PID one or two. Yeah, I mean, basically to turn it into your OS. Yeah, Emacs is definitely. Uh, <laughs> It's got everything under the hood that you could probably want as far as a text editor goes, and then some. All right. Well, this has been Lord Dragonblue at Scale13x with Think Penguin. All right, folks, this is Lord Dragonblue at Scale13x, and currently I'm at the Cody booth. And who do I have the uh, pleasure of speaking with? Uh, my name is Garrett, uh, username GareBear on the forums. I'm a developer for Cody. Uh, and I'm Nathan, uh, my username Nate Thomas on the forum. I'm the project manager, community manager, sort of every man for, the, for Cody. Now, for people who may not be aware, can you kind of tell the uh, history of the Cody project, where it started and kind of where it is now? Sure. Um, Cody started in 2002 as the Xbox Media Player. Uh, and it was originally meant purely for old uh, modded Xboxes from back in those days, way before the Xbox 360. Um, around 2008, it got ported over to Linux, and from there it got ported to basically everything else on the planet. And right now it runs on Linux, Windows, uh, Macs, uh, iOS, and Android. Um, Lately, we've been pushing a lot of the Raspberry Pi stuff because we just like Raspberry Pi quite a lot. Um, but for the most part, it, it, it runs everywhere that you can possibly run software at this point. Now, technically, if I under on the technical side of things, what has been the shift in Cody? Because as I remember, it was originally built using um, an Xbox-specific tool. And has moved now to being under more open uh, software. What's kind of been the history there? What did it start as? Where is it now? Well, once we moved over to Linux, everything had to become completely standard Linux built stuff. So that's we were using um, Auto Tools or Autocon for a while. Now we've switched over to CMake, which is cross-platform and solves a lot of problems. All right. Now, what does... Um, XP, or sorry, I'm still in the XBMC frame set. I, I used, I started using it back in 0203 when it you know was getting started. But um, what kind of area does Cody fulfill for people? It's, uh, I mean, the whole point of Cody is to provide a 10 foot interface for people to to to, to watch and play back their local media. Uh, as well as uh, online streaming content. Uh, so if you have you know, local movies or TV shows, you can watch them uh, with a nice interface that you can, you can browse through on the couch. It's kind of a little bit of a different platform than, for example, VLC, which is down, down the booth a couple ways, which is more of a desktop uh, media center, or a, a desktop software that plays back media files. Uh, we're more of a couch software, and we've, to some extent, moved on these days to uh, tablets as well. So you have the 10-foot interface and you also have kind of a nice tablet interface for dealing with your local content. Now for a very, very long time, uh, XBMC and Cody, um, they were only kind of local playback or uh, from certain streaming services. Um, but recently there's been some work on PBR and live TV support. Um, how is that coming along, you think? Uh, it's coming along, at this point, much better in Europe than America. Uh, mostly because most of the, develop the devs who are doing a lot of the, the support for live TV come from Europe. So the spec is mostly based around DVB. Um, but the way Cody works with uh, PVR sources is Cody itself isn't actually a PVR tuning service itself. What it uses is backends like TV headend or VDR or things like that to, to hook into over-the-air TV or cable TV, depending. Um, so as those, those various uh, TV services, VDR, TV headend, kind of improve, then Cody sees the improvement without actually needing to do anything. It's, it's, we've been moving towards add-onifying a, a lot of what we do, so you can update without having to update Cody. And that's just one area where we're doing 
exactly that. All right. And what would you guys say are some of the more um, exciting things that are in Cody's near future, things that are being in development right now, you know, kind of beta but coming out, you know, coming on strong? Well, I would say two of the big things. Uh, Garrett here, obviously, he's working on something called Retro Player, which uh, allows Cody to play uh, old old games from you know the Super Nintendo uh, Super Nintendo days uh, and things like that. We've actually we've actually got some hardware here. We haven't got it hooked up that lets you plug in an old Super Nintendo cartridge that you can then actually play Super Nintendo games directly in the Cody interface. Uh, it's not hooked up at the moment because it's. It's definitely very much a horizon thing. It's not working very well right now. Uh, so that's a big one. Now, what is this device you have, Garrett? Where can people acquire it and kind of tell them more about it in general? Okay, so this device I'm holding right here, it's a little black box. And on one end, it has a USB port. On the other end, it has a Super Nintendo. And is that Sega... Genesis. Yeah, Genesis. Um, There's also an adapter for N64. And an N64 adapter that supports controllers, which lets you plug all of these old cartridges and controllers into a computer. I'm working on software that lets you play those games in Kodi. So this is kind of similar to this device, kind of similar to like the Retro- Retron 5 exactly. without the software. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, it's actually quite similar to Retron 5. It uh, doesn't have a lot of the limitations that Retron 5 does. Retron 5, I believe, is Android-based or some embedded Linux with a bunch of emulators strapped on top. All of these emulators are integrated into the software, so it's a much more fluid experience. All right. And what other um, things do you see that are kind of exciting developments in Kodi right now? Uh, The other thing... I, at least I'm personally really excited about is the improvement to UPnP we're looking at in the future. Uh, on, on our blog, every once in a while, we've talked about eventually turning Kodi into a mesh network. So a, a lot of a lot of media center companies out there these days work on a server client basis. Like, just for example, take Netflix. Netflix has clients that can't do anything, and a server by itself that can't do anything. You need them to work together to do anything. Uh, whereas Kodi is a server client all by itself in every instance of coding. So in the future, what we're excited about is getting two instances of Kodi talking together. Each instance could have its own you know, media on the server, uh, and it would populate both libraries with all the media. Um, so if you, for example, had a tablet that had something that you wanted everybody to see at somebody's house. You can take the tablet with you to your friend's house, and he's running Cody. Um, and it would automatically add whatever's on your tablet to the to the Cody environment at your friend's house without ha- having to do anything at all. So basically, um, one way to put it is you're working on a feder- kind of a federated service for Cody. Um, sure, that sounds that sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, um, what are kind of your guys's personal Cody setups like? Uh, I'm sorry, can you say that again? What's your personal Cody setups like at home? Uh, well, my uh, mine is I have a Pi hooked up to my TV. I have a gaming PC. Um, that's sort of where I do all my heavy lifting and actually actually do all my work. Um, and I have a bunch of tablets and things that I play around with. Let's see, I have a pretty cool little uh, set-top box. It's entirely solid state, so there's no moving parts, no fans. Perfect for a media center because it doesn't make any noise whatsoever. Pretty cool little device. Is that the Zotac one? No, this is the Shield. Oh, the Shield, yeah. Now, is that the only part... Is that the only part of your Cody setup at home, or is there more to it? <laughs> I have I have Cody in every room, hooked up to every TV. It's I have many many Cody devices, but my my favorite one by far is the little shuttle case that has a passive heatsink. All right, and what is the license of Cody currently, and has there been any changes from when it kind of started as XPMC on the Xbox to now? No, it's GPL2, and it's always been GPL2. We don't foresee it changing any time in the future. And what um, what 
I remember, I think, a while back, there was a rather big change in the main UI switching to QT, if I'm correct. It hasn't happened in our project. Okay, maybe I'm mistaken. I thought there was a there major... Was, there was that Google Summer of Code project uh, for the Linux where they we, we, we've added a windowing engine or something like that. I forget what it was exactly. Was that merged? I don't remember. I don't know. Um, anything you'd like the HPR audience um, to know about Cody that maybe I've missed at this point? It's uh, awesome. It rocks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if people want to get involved with Cody, if they want to use it, where should they go to uh, find out more? Check out our forums. It's uh, forum.cody.tv. All right. And the last question I was asked to ask people is, what is your preferred text editor? I'm going to go with uh, Notepad++. I, I have to admit, I mostly use Macs. So for me, it's J-Edit, but I, I'm embarrassed to admit that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. This has been Lord Drakenblut at Scale13x. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.